morning, everyone. My name is Will, and I am one of the servants here at New Life Press, and we are continuing along in our series called Real Marriage, in which we are praying and hoping that the lens of the Bible would be able to reorient and redefine and help us to see with more clarity God's vision and purpose for marriage. And today, we're going to consider the design and the role and the reason and purpose for husbands. And so if you have your Bibles, let me read for us our passage, Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21, and I'll be reading to verse 33. This is God's word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is God's word for us, friends. As we look at this passage, we will consider, as I mentioned, the role of the husband, And oftentimes when we do this in a regular service, it's the wives who sort of nudge and sort of look with glaring eyes to their husband and all the inadequacies and brokenness and shortfallings that the husband does not do. But I pray that it will be more of a positive encouragement here to see, first, our true bridegroom and husband in Jesus and what he has done for us and how that transforms and empowers us to be able to be gospel-centered husbands, at least for those of us fellows who are married. And I want to look at this passage, and I want you to notice three things about the role of the husband, but they're all really expressions of one reality. If there's one word that describes the role of the husband in Ephesians 5, it's the word love. It's the word love. That's the primary foundational expression and purpose and goal of the husband is to love his wife, and specifically means these three things. One, love is foundational to his role in marriage. Secondly, love is other-centered. And then thirdly, love is authority. In other words, love is going to be the basis for the husband's purpose and role. Secondly, love is for the wife is other-centered, for her preferences, her needs, her betterment. And then third, love is a specific expression of this word the culture doesn't like called authority. Authority expresses itself in love. Love is an expression of authority. So let's look at this. First, love is foundational in verses 25 to 27 because if there's one word that characterizes the role of husbands, it's love. It's there seven times in the verses that I've just read. And that's interesting because you would think that, according to those who have grown up in the church, that you would imagine the word that Paul would have used for husbands is to lead or to decide. But that's not the word he uses. He says love. 
Read with me verses 25 to 26. This is what it says. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word. That there is what we see the definition of love. It says there, as Christ loved the church, in the same way husbands love your wives. And contrary to the way that culture understands love, love is not just an emotion, it's actually an action driven and empowered by the gospel. It involves emotions, but it's so much more than that because it tells us at least that you can love your wife even when you don't feel it, and it's completely biblical, completely sustainable, completely understandable. Sometimes you don't have the same emotions and feelings towards your wife, but you can show gospel-centered, Christ-like love. Of course, you want both. You want your emotions and actions, but it says love that is defined mostly as an action. It says there, Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. And that's what husbands are called to do. We're called to love as our first responsibility. This means you love by leading her, sacrificing for her, serving her, helping her, praying for her, talking to her. That's what, the, what we see in this passage in other words, friends, the basis and power for the husbands to do what we're called to do is Jesus' love for the church. It's interesting to note here that in, when it talks about what Jesus has done for the bride, there's an order that needs to be highlighted and understood. It wasn't as if Jesus came and said, the church is beautiful, now I'm going to die. Or the church is obedient, now I'm going to sacrifice for my church. Or the church worships me with all its glory or heart, and now Jesus is going to die. In other words, Jesus isn't responsive. It's not a conditional love. It's not a secondary love, a responsive love. What we see here is that Jesus loved first, unconditionally, by his own grace, by his own mercy. He loved the church first, and then the church became beautiful. It wasn't a conditional love. It was entirely unconditional. It wasn't as if Jesus saw the church to be perfect and beautiful and said, the church is worthy of my love, I'm going to die. But rather, it says the church is unworthy, but I'm going to die for the church anyways to make her clean and to be beautiful. So in the same way, husbands are supposed to love our wives unconditionally. You love your wives in such a way that she may not deserve it, but you love her so much that you would represent Christ to her and die for her, serve her, be other-centered. Sometimes wives or even girlfriends were asked their boyfriends or husbands, why do you love me? And I wonder what some of the husbands and men in our church would say to that question. Why do you love me? It's a fair question. It's an understandable one. But a good biblical answer to that question, fellas, if you're married or in a relationship, a good answer to that question um, is not to say, because God told me so or because the gospel compels me. Why do you love me? Well, that's what the gospel does. It's a, it's a biblical answer, but it doesn't always make it the best answer. Why do you love me? Well, because Jesus died for the church, and I want to emulate that. That's definitely true. But there's something deeper that you can understand about the love of God that expresses itself in Christ to the church. If you read with me, this captures sort of the essence of the love of Jesus for the church and how husbands can love our wives as a foundational reality. Read with me Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. This is God loving Israel, which is sort of the sea relationship with Jesus and the church. It says right there, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand or redeemed you from the house of slavery in the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, what we see here is an entirely unconditional love by God to his people. See, what Deuteronomy 7 is saying this, if I just summarize it in a nutshell, it says, I didn't choose Israel because you are the greatest army, the most sophisticated, the most educated, the most beautiful people. It actually says it's the opposite. I chose you not because you were the biggest, but because you were the smallest. So the world will know I'll use this ordinary small nation to accomplish my purpose. And we see the heart of God in the reason because he said, I set my love on you. And what is his reason? Verse 8 says, because I love you. Now, you've probably read about this. It's an unconditional love. It's sort of a circular argument. God says, I set my love on you because I love you. In other words, God is saying, I love you because I love you because I love you. Any other reason that you give to the question, why do you love me, is going to be a conditional love. Even good things. So if somebody says, I love you because you're young, well, you're going to get older and you have wrinkles in your eyes. You won't look the same. I love you because you're beautiful, but you may not look physically the same as you do today, 20 years from today. You could get into a car accident. There's all kinds of things that could happen. You could say, I love you because you're a great cook, but something could happen where the food doesn't taste as much as good as it did before. I love you because you're so good at cleaning the house. That could change too because your wife may work or may not feel like doing it or they're physically unable to do it anymore. All these legitimate answers are legitimate, but you have to understand that the essence of God's love and Jesus' love for the church, it doesn't capture the gospel power that husbands are to love our wives, which is unconditional. Now, I know it sounds corny, and you should never really say this. I guess it's up to you, but if Valentine's Day or birthday rolls around, you say, why do you love me, honey? Well, you could say, I love you because I love you because I love you. Well, it's kind of corny, but it captures really the heart of God. It's unconditional. Did you know that in all the attributes of God, in 1 John, it says God is love. God is love. Love in that verse in 1 John is a noun. And that's important because that means Love is an attribute of God that is in a class of its own because God is love. God equals love. Love is a noun. And that means that it's so much of who God is. The one characteristic out of all of them that says God is equated to this because it doesn't say in the Bible that God is grace. It says God is gracious. It doesn't say God is holiness. The noun is uses the adjective. God is holy. God is gracious or God is holy. It doesn't say God is righteousness. This is God is righteous. The only, the only attribute, the only characteristic that describes God as a noun is love. It's equated to him. It says that God and who he is, what he's made up of, is love. So if God is love as a noun, it makes sense. I love you because I love you because I love you. And that's the paradigm, friends, fellas, brothers, for those of us who will be husbands, those of us who are husbands, you love your wife as a foundational reality because the very love of Jesus for the church shows itself through the husband to the wife, no matter how she responds and what she does. I love you because I love you because I love you. 
That means as we begin and go into the second point, love characterizes everything that you do. In your sacrifice, your service, your forgiveness. You love her when she doesn't deserve it. You love her when you don't even like what she does. You love her even when she doesn't, quote-unquote, submit or disrespects you because Christ loved the church, died for the church, cleansed the church, was other-centered, made the church beautiful unconditionally. In The Intimate Mystery, Dan Allender, he says this, marriage is supposed to be a world in which we suspend the vast majority of our best time as we spend the vast majority of our best time weaving together the threads of our lives through talking and listening, loving your wife. But secondly, love isn't just the foundational reality. It's also other-centered. In verse 25, Jesus sacrifices himself for the church. And then verses 26 to 27, there are three purpose clauses that shows the goal of Jesus' sacrifice. And this is the three purpose clauses in verses 26 to 27. Jesus sacrifices for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, that he might present the church to him in splendor, that she might be holy and without blemish. Those are the three purpose clauses. It's completely other-centered. Why do I love my wife? Not because she could do things for me or make me happy. It's because it's for her betterment. It's other-centered. The goal is for her preferences, her needs, and what she could do in the sense of becoming holy and sanctified. Three purpose clauses. In other words, the goal and the purpose of Jesus' headship and sacrifice is completely other-centered and it's for the betterment of the church in the same way that husbands are supposed to do this. You see, friends, in the New Testament, in the ancient world, roles were rigidly, rigidly defined between husband and wife, and roles were a sign of one's status and worth. It was, in other words, for personal gain. So the ruling class, those who had authority, those who were in a position of power, they would understand their role to have more prestige and higher status. And those who were ruled and the ruling class were considered to have lower status. So roles were defined for personal gain. You want higher status, more money, better food, better connections. But the Bible doesn't reduce marriage to higher and lower status. It actually implies that husband and wife are equal, adopted. Everyone submits to Christ out of reverence. Everyone is equal, but there are differing roles. But the point that Paul is trying to make when love is other-centered is saying that it's other-centered because in the kingdom of God, everyone has equal status and worth, and the goal is transformation. So Jesus dies for the church, makes her clean. Husbands, in the way that we talk and relate, are other-centered, not because we're the ruling class and the wife is a ruled, but because we're equal in God's kingdom, and we want to be an instrument of change for our wives. That's what we see in marriage. Husbands, in other words, don't use our headship to serve their own needs and comforts, but they use their headship to sacrificially love for the betterment, preferences, and the welfare of the wife. That's verses 26 to 27, the verses we just read. In other words, if you think about it this way, even in between the parent and child relationship, the parent represents God to the child and represents God's purpose and his paradigm for children. You represent Christ, mother and father, to the kids. But in the same way, the husbands also represent God and Jesus to the wife with God's plan, God's purpose, and God's paradigm. God places the husband in this intimate relationship of marriage to represent Jesus 
to the wife. Husbands, you are the spiritual head. You lead her to Christ for the betterment of her. This should work out in such a way that you don't demand or force your wife to submit, but that husbands love and serve your wife in such a way that your wife naturally would want to respect and encourage your leadership. The husband and wife are really at a point where they should be out-loving one another in God's design. You know, one of the questions I get in marital counseling, but even if you just read about this other-centeredness, is uh, what do I do when my wife criticizes me? And sisters, wives, don't worry, we'll get to you next week. Now, what do you do when my wife keeps criticizing me, even if it's true or not? Now, you're trying your best, but you're never good enough. And honestly, it's tough. And as hard as this is, the first thing you do as husbands is that you rest and you contemplate and you think about the perfect bridegroom, the perfect husband, Jesus. Before you get to anything that you do, what if my wife is just too naggy? What if my wife just doesn't understand, too critical, can never do anything right? And I know it's tough and I know it's difficult, but the first thing you do is to reflect your heart and your thinking upon Jesus. And what did he do to us? Because we are that wife to Christ. We are that critical person disobedient to Jesus vertically. And that could soften your heart, and that could give you a perspective to say, as much as I think my wife is so difficult and complaining and nagging and criticizing, I'm that to Christ on an infinitely more deeper level. And the harsh and difficult challenge is to say that in marriage, extraordinary change always happens in ordinary moments. So in the everyday conversations between husband and wife, when you feel that is difficult, what is your response? When she criticizes you, complains to you, nags you, quote-unquote, your response is love. How you respond to criticism, how you respond to those moments, may be your most powerful way to love your wife and testify to the grace of Jesus. That God would use you to speak to your wife and use your wife to speak to you. And other-centered love to sacrifice. How do you lead your wife, brothers and husbands? Do you model a Christ-like love? Do you pray for her? Do you pray with her? Do you read the Bible? Are you the spiritual lead? If it's other-centered and for the betterment of the wife, do you lead her to Jesus? Do you model the importance of Sunday worship? Do you encourage the family in that way? Do you catechize your children? And by the way, friends, pastors are not great at this either. These are things, this is a hard sermon to preach because I stand here as the ultimate hypocrite. And so we're all in this together. But do you model that sort of godliness to lead your wife to Christ? Because at the end of the day, that's what it means to be other-centered. How you pray, how you talk, how you forgive, how you speak, how you make yourself vulnerable how you prioritize the church, how you understand the gospel, that you want to grow in maturity and godliness and express that to your wife. That's the role of the husband. And too much in this day and age, we see the roles are switched in which the husband is a spiritual deadbeat, but the wife is the one that's spiritually persevering and leading, which is fantastic for the sisters. As we encourage leadership and godliness, of course we do, but at the same time, husbands are to lead in that way. Last but not least, let's look at authority. 
This is a tough word. I almost didn't want to put authority into the third point because authority is such a bad word in our day and age. We don't like authority. We know there's a lot of abuse of authority, but we can't get away from what the Bible says because in the structure of this reality called the world we live in, authority is the way God designed this world, and it's everywhere in this world. It's in the civil kingdom, in the governments, it's at your workplace, it's in the family between parent and children, it's in the church with the pastors and sessions. There's always an authority, and there's also authority or a headship in the marriage. Verse 23, this is what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself is Savior. And verse 23 has this idea of headship and submission, head and body, and that encompasses this idea of authority. It's built into the structure. In other words, if you just do a simple word study, authority has a root word of author, and therefore the word author means source. You know, that's why when you write a paper for school, a good paper, you go with their whatever academic principle, to go to the primary source. Go to the original author. Don't read secondary authors. Go to the primary source because that primary source has the original author, which is the authority of whatever you're trying to study. And so this idea of headship is, yes, authority. There's a source there. That's why in Genesis 2 to 3, Eve was taken out of Adam. But this authority and source doesn't mean superiority. Actually, in God's design, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, male, female, are equal, yet there are roles and there's a structure to God's design. Author and authority means source, but in the same way, the Greek word for head implies this idea of source and this structure of authority. So authority is unavoidable. But let's look at what gospel authority is, especially in the context of marriage. Gospel authority is not this. It's not absolute, but that's only God. And it doesn't mean total deference of the wife and domination of the husband. It doesn't mean that just because the husband is the leader, the head, that the husband decides everything and the wife just follows. That's not authority in the gospel sense. That's what we call abuse of authority. That's not total deference of the wife and domination of the husband. Biblical gospel-centered authority is this. You have to understand that authority is a natural aspect and expression of love. Jesus coming into this world doesn't eliminate authority. It redeems authority. Authority is used for the betterment and the good of the people and the wife. You see, friends, the Bible is so interesting in the way that it wants to describe this headship and this idea of authority because in the world, authority is always attached to power. And that's that's true. There is a power there. But in the Bible, the, word, the concept of authority in these verses attached to love. Authority is a natural aspect of love, an expression of love. So even as the husband is the head of the relationship, the authority is expressed as an expression of Christ-like other-centered love to the wife, the betterment of the people. Another way to think about this, brothers and church, is that authority is a gift. It is a privilege an honor. It's not a right and it's not an entitlement. If you approach authority as an entitlement, as a right, then you're one step closer to abusing this God-given gift of authority. Because at the end of the day, in the gospel, authority is an expression of your love. Authority is an expression of your service. Because Christ died for the church. Because he was head of the church. 
in the same way that husbands die for your wives because you are the head of the wife. You sacrificially serve your wife. You place her needs and wants before yours so that when you express authority in love, there's one question, husbands, just to ask. When you express your authority and love to your wife, what did it cost you, even if it's something small? Because Jesus, he sacrificed his love. Real authority expressed in other-centered, servant-like love, this authority that's an aspect of love because it's a gift and privilege, means that you sacrifice and it costs you. So even in small decisions, you think, if I love my wife, which is a greater joy, and I express my authority in love to serve my wife, what did it cost you? Just a simple question. It could happen in small ways, not telling you to be a martyr, but in some ways, you say no to yourself because you say yes to love. What did it cost you? Maybe it means it cost you more time. You got to talk more to your wife. Maybe it cost you discomfort because you have to share what your day was like and how your feelings were. Maybe it cost you your preference because you want to go to vacation here, but you'll go here. Maybe it'll cost you your preference because you'd rather eat at this restaurant, but you're going to eat here. In small ways, you say no to yourself and yes to love, and that'll lead to greater joy. Sometimes that means you cost yourself to say, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to throw laundry into the laundromat. I'm going to pray with my wife. I'm going to listen to her. I'm going to be corrected by my wife. I'm going to listen to my wife so that she can speak truth into me. And you gain so much out of that. But gospel authority is not one which is just attached to power. It's attached more to love. It's a privilege. It's a gift. It's something that expresses your heart to serve your wife. Authority in the Bible, just like Jesus, is not to receive, but is to give. It's not to honor yourself, but to honor the other people. That's what authority is used and meant to be. It's other expressive betterment for your wife. Let's dig into this a little bit more. Let's try to sort out roles here, which is difficult, husband and wife roles. Winston Smith, the counselor, has wrote a book called Who Does the Dishes, talking about husband and wife roles. And he says this, no matter how marital roles are defined, they are only different expressions of love. The most important question, in other words, in understanding gender roles and husband and wife roles is not, what am I allowed to do? What can I not do? What is my job description or function? The most important question to ask in your husband and wife gender roles is, am I expressing love to my spouse, even if it's love through authority? I would actually argue, friends, that there is a structure, but there are no rigidly defined roles between husband and wife. There's not someone that's supposed to do the dishes. There's not someone who's supposed to make all the decisions. There's not someone who's supposed to do all the finances, someone who's supposed to do all the cooking and cleaning, someone who's supposed to do all, all what the culture establishes as a norm between gender roles. There are structures. There is a purpose, but I don't know actually in the specifics that the Bible dictates specifically defined, rigidly defined roles. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what the gospel allows. In other words, it's the principle of love that defines what each couple and husband and wife are to do and to work out. That's how the gospel transforms marriages. It's not the culture that dictates your role, nor your personal experiences, and it's not your family that dictates the role, which is a big one, that oftentimes husband and wife, they just replicate what their mom and dad did on each side, and then you come into this new family, and it creates a lot of tension. You don't replicate past patterns. You don't take what the culture says. 
You look in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that you have in love. Winston Smith gives a helpful, I think, a helpful illustration of what this may look like. He says sometimes when he counsels married couples, he goes through an exercise, and this is the exercise that he does. He says with the husband and wife, let's draw a big circle, and this is the circle of responsibility of your love. Love for any disciple, any person. What does love look like in the gospel, this big circle? And they fill it up with all kinds of descriptions and applications. They say, well, love for a Christian in this circle means there's kindness, there's generosity, there's patience, there's sacrifice, there's honesty, there's humility, there's correction, you know, there's physical expending. So there's all kinds of descriptions and actions of this circle of responsibility of love. And then what Winston Smith says that in this circle, let's draw two smaller circles. And these two smaller circles represent how husband and wife specifically love in marriage. And so let's just fill it out, he says. And oftentimes he says this is what happens. Husbands in their small circle of love has things like decision-making, working, finances, disciplining. In other words, it's usually elements related to power and control. And in the wife's small circle, they have housekeeping, cooking, helping the kids with homework, putting them to bed. Things are a little bit more domesticated. And friends, what I'm saying is this. That's fine and perfectly good if that's how you want to do it with your wife, but what I'm saying is that that's not the only way to define the smaller circles of how husband and wife love. That might be more what culture says. That might be more what your families did, and you're replicating this. But I don't see that specifically in the Bible. What drives our understanding of roles, cultural normativity or gospel transformation? The point that Winston Smith is making is that there's much more fluidity between the specific functions and responsibilities between husbands and wives. Because remember, these two small circles are all encompassed in the circle of love. So the dominant question is not really who does the dishes, but how can I love my wife in this moment in my relationship? It's all expressions of love. Whatever you do as husband and wife, it never falls outside the circle of love. We should have more shared duties rather than distinctions because it's all in love. It's not as if you have husband and wife responsibilities and all of a sudden that's not love. It's all expressions of love. Authority is an expression of love. Submission is an expression of love. Doing the dishes is an expression of love. Working is an expression of love. Everything is an expression of love. So I think in the gospel, there is structure, there is a head, there is authority, but the gender-specific roles have much more commonality because it all is an expression of love than distinctions. And the husband's job is to love your wife out of preferences for her and what makes her be driven more to Jesus. In verses 28 to 29, it says this, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husbands are to love their wives as their own body, which means that you nourish and cherish your wife. That word nourish there is what it sounds like. It means to give nutrients, to feed your body in the same way you give gospel health to your wife. That word cherish means to warm the body, to prize it, to have a tenderness towards her body. And that's how the husband is supposed to relate in love to the wife. You nourish your wife by leading her to Jesus. You cherish her with an, a warmth, a tenderness, an empathy, and a love. You give the wife what she needs in that way. 
The last point about authority as we come to a close. Because there is authority, and this is where I get this from a lecture by Tim Keller, he says, whenever there's a big decision between husband and wife, somebody has to be the tiebreaker. This is where authority may come in. Somebody has to have tie-breaking authority. A really big decision, two equally wise, gospel-centered, biblical answers to a really important decision. You talk to the community, you talk to the pastors, you discussed it, you prayed with it, husband and wife talked about it with humility. Somebody has to make the decision in a tie-breaking authority. And I think the Bible says that tie-breaking authority goes to the husband. But here's the thing, friends, especially for the brothers. That tie-breaking authority usually should happen only two to three lifetimes in your life. This is a really big decision. If you're using, I have tie-breaking authority, and you're using it every second and every moment of every day, that's not gospel authority. That's probably abuse of authority. Tie-breaking authority is this humble, listening, other-centered discussion, maybe two to three times in your life, and you have a tie-breaking authority, and somebody has to make that decision. I think it's the husband who is the head, thinking about the betterment of the wife, the family, pursuing a vision for God. Rare, maybe two to three times in life, the tie-breaking authority goes to the husband. But that's how I believe the authority works out in the marriage. And friends, at the end of the day, this is what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ who loved the body, his bride as himself. Jesus who sacrificed himself to cleanse the church, to present the church to himself in glory and splendor, who had this authority but used it to die for the wife for her preferences. And by that power, by that truth, we have an honor, a joy, a privilege to sacrifice, to serve for the preferences, the needs, the betterment of our wives because it is a joy and it is an honor in the same way of what Jesus has done for us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word and we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our great bridegroom, our husband, who's died for us and cleansed us, who's given himself for us, and transformed us and changed us and cleansed us so that we may be brought into an intimate relationship with him. I pray for the marriages at the church and the husbands. I pray for the wives. I pray for those who will eventually be a husband. Lord, that you would work in their hearts now the awesome and great truth of what Jesus has done for the bride and that we may continue to grow and to think and to live and to talk in such a way that we are ambassadors of Christ to our wives. We thank you so much, Lord, for this time. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.